0: RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector. I'm Ash Daniels, the host of this podcast and each month we'll discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA-regulated entities, TPR-regulated entities, as well as offshore professionals and accountants. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you might be listening to us today, welcome back to Money Covered. We've had a brief hiatus while I was off trying out a different role, and that was being a dad, which involved lots of nursery rhymes and cartoons, so I'm very pleased to be back having an adult conversation and learning a bit about liability-driven investments today with my guest Rachel Healy. So Rachel thanks for joining me today to talk about the new or at least new to most people certainly new to me world of liability-driven investments. So for starters and in a nutshell what is liability-driven investments or LDI for short?
1: Well, that's probably an impossible question to answer, Ash, but I'll give it a go. So, If the first, anyone can, you can. So I think the starting point is that LDI or liability-driven investments, as you say, is an investment strategy. It's an investment strategy adopted by final salary, or sometimes called defined benefit pension schemes. Those pension schemes, which most of us are unfortunately not in a position to have and guarantee you a level of income in retirement. And LDI as a strategy comes about because final salary pension scheme trustees are trying to invest a large amount of money in order to provide pensions in the future. Pensions often decades, maybe even a century going forward. And as a result of that, they have a number of investment risks that they have to think about, inflation, interest rate risk, and longevity. So simply, the longer people live, the more expensive it's going to be because you have to pay them for longer. The lower interest rates are, the more expensive the modern day, present day value of the pension is, because interest rates help if you can put the money somewhere that you can get a return on. And the higher inflation, the higher the present value of your pension as well, because pensions in a defined benefit world try and keep up a little bit with inflation, so it costs you more money. So these pension scheme trustees have this issue of trying to invest this money to see far, far into the future and try and be in a position where they can meet the liabilities in the future. Now, if you are a risk-averse trustee, then what you would do is put all of your pension scheme investments into bonds. And perhaps the best bond known out there is the GILT or the government bond, effectively loaning money. And the reason why investing in bonds is great for trustees is because it broadly matches the inflation and interest rate risks that I've referred to. So ideally, they put all their money into a bond type investments, because that means that they are matching their assets with their liabilities. So they're not sat there worrying about whether or not they're going to have enough money in the future, because if inflation changes or interest rates changes, the bond investments that they made should broadly mirror those changes. However, unfortunately, most final salary pension schemes have a large deficit. They have a huge hole to fill. So putting everything into a bond is not brilliant, because it means that that deficit is unlikely to come down in the near future. And the pensions regulator doesn't like that. CBHS, BHS, see Carillion, not happy with huge pension deficits. So as a result, pension scheme trustees have to invest in riskier assets, equities, other types of investments, so they can get a return, try and make up that deficit. And it's probably fair to say the employer quite likes that too, because he's not having to put in a whole load of money. But the problem of having to invest in riskier assets is that they can go up and they can go down, which means your deficit goes up and goes down, and the employer's balance sheet gets in a rather difficult state. So from year to year, the deficit might be bigger or smaller, and as a result, their balance sheet might be not looking as as good as it might otherwise. So as a result, the trustees have have this dilemma. They want to invest in bonds to make everything safe and try and match the investment risks of the future. But at the same time, they've got to make up the deficits. They need to invest in a risky way and incomes at this point LDI. And in broad terms, what that does is pretend you've got more bonds than you actually have. Another fancy financial term for pretending you've got more bonds is leverage. So they effectively leverage their bonds that they have, pretending they've got more bonds, so they're matching their assets and liabilities from the balance sheet point of view from the employer, whilst at the same time investing in lots of whizzy other investments so that they can try and make up that deficit. Hopefully that makes sense. It is rather complicated.
0: No, I think that, well, that's great for me. It's obviously something that we didn't deal with very often before. So for me, it's it's really interesting to learn a bit more about it. And on that topic, I guess it's safe to say that most people hadn't heard of LDI before. And I guess my question is, we've seen financial crashes before. So sort of what's the difference this time around?
1: Yep. Yeah, so this time around, why has LDI become part of what everyone understands? When, if you ask most people at the start of September 2022, what is LDI, they'd have looked at you and, and wondered if it was a new funny social media abbreviation that they hadn't heard of. So at this point, enter Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, who produced the not so many budget on the 23rd of September 2022. With the benefit of hindsight, we'll all say there were so many um, unfunded tax cuts. As a result of all of those unfunded tax cuts, as the markets saw it, the cost of government borrowing, i.e. gilts, as we referred to earlier, went through the roof. Effectively, the financial market said, dear UK government, you're going to have to borrow a lot of money to make up the gap that you're creating from these tax cuts. I am therefore going to put a, what some people have recalled, a muppet premium on your gilts. And hence, gilt yields went through the roof. As a result of that, what pension schemes have done with LDI is bet against increases in guilt yields, increases in inflation, increases in interest rates. So as a result of the fact, they were in sort of Las Vegas gambling terms, losing their bet. As a result, the counterparties to these LDI strategies said, you're losing the bet. I don't trust you've got enough money. Give me some collateral i.e. give me some assets to prove that you can pay your bet off. So if you're in the gambling casino, they might want the keys to your car or the keys to your house so that they know that you're good for the bet that you've made. The problem was for, for pension schemes facing this dilemma in the latter part of September and the early part of October 2022 was that they had to find cash quick. And the quickest way to find cash was to sell gilts. However, all that did was put more guilt into the market and increase guilt yet further and ended up with what was coined the doom loop, whereby sell more guilt, guilt yields go up, more collateral calls made by the counterparty to your LDI strategy. Sell more guilt, guilt yields go up. Just kept going round until the Bank of England intervened. So the reason we're hearing about it is because of a mini budget.
0: Yeah, very short tenure for Liz Trust, but certainly long impacting, I guess. i never good when a pension scheme or initiative has doom written into it or reference to it. It's not a good start. So you mentioned earlier on, right, it won't directly impact the schemes that you or I are likely to rely on. But so who do we kind of consider? Who are the, you know, the sort of the claimants that you might see if if any claims were to be brought?
1: Yeah. So LDI, as I said, it's all about final salary pension schemes, the investment strategies used by final salary pension schemes. And it's probably worth saying after the mini budget, that pension scheme deficits fell. Because guilt yields actually means it's a lot cheaper for a pension scheme, a final salary pension scheme, to go to an insurance company and what's called buyout, effectively hand it over to an insurer for a premium and say, you deal with it going forward, I don't want it on my balance sheet as an employer. But the problem with the LDI crisis, as it's been called, is that a lot happened over a short period of time. And over that short period of time, if you were more heavily invested in LDI type strategies, you may well not be as well funded today as you would have been had you not invested so heavily in LDI. So I think the starting point will be actually, what is the loss? Is there a loss there? And that's going to be quite difficult and require some actuarial input to to value that. So for me, that's sort of the $100 million question is whether or not people can find losses. And if there are losses, is it going to be the employer who's first and foremost interested about it? And this is why this this question is quite important, because a lot of people off the back of the LDI crisis were worried that all of these pensioners in the country were going to Totter down to their local CMC or or law firm and bring lots of claims because they'd have lost their pension in quotation marks. No one's lost their pension off the back of LDI. Who has lost out, if anybody, is the employer who may well have to make a level of contribution to the scheme that they might not otherwise have had to make at that level had LDI, had the scheme not been as highly exposed to LDI as it was. So who's going to bring these claims? Well, it will be the employer and the trustees because they're the ones with the pension fund they're the ones saying why on earth did I go into LDI at this at this level if I hadn't I wouldn't actually have you know I'd wouldn't even been putting in 10 million this year into my pension scheme rather than 15.
0: I guess my next point would be it seems like quite a well-established practice it's been going on for for many many years and the mini budget last autumn was obviously quite unexpected in its content so don't want to throw around the sort of the blame word, but you know, is is anybody really to blame? Is it just a kind of you know number of elements coming together to cause an unfortunate situation, I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the question that I think may be asked over the next 12 to 18 months as to whether or not there are any losses, because that's going to be what's going to drive claims. For me, the first question is: has my deficit been reduced by as much as it might have been reduced, but for LDI? And then next to that question will be the question. Should I be in an LDI at all? If I was an LDI, should I have been in LDI at the level that I was? Um, and for me, the first question, it's going to be really difficult for the reasons you mentioned, Ash, for, it seems to me, for any claimant, either employer or trustee, bringing claims against third parties to say LDI was fundamentally wrong because LDI has worked incredibly well for the pensions industry over a number of decades. It's been around for about 20 years. There was some evidence before the Work and Pensions Committee that schemes who had been invested at a certain level with LDI for 20 years were hundreds of millions of pounds better off, irrespective of what happened after the money budget. So the first type of loss that people will look at is, is my deficit larger than it might have always have been? And that will come down to was LDI right in the first place? What's the level of LDI right? I think it's the second question around the level of LDI that will be interesting as to what would a reasonably competent uh, professional in the circumstances have recommended. There are other types of claims that may well be made. There may well be other losses that have been generated. The LDI crisis and the guilt crisis after the money budget spurred a lot of activity amongst investment managers and others involved with final salary pension schemes. As a result of that, things did go wrong, as they inevitably do when things have to be done quite quickly. Also, there will be questions around whether or not assets sold in order to meet collateral calls were sold at values, and there might be questions around that. Separately, and this is another really big issue that the pensions industry, I think, is going to have to grapple with in the in the wake of LDI is that one of the issues, as I mentioned, was having to find money in order to meet collateral calls. And that led to the doom loop that I've referred to earlier. Why weren't schemes better prepared? Not necessarily better prepared in the sense of not being in LDI or being in less LDI, but was the rest of their investment portfolio ready for the LDI strategy that they had, who had the overall view as to what was going on? And did they do the right thing? And did they think about the position in the run-up to the mini budget in terms of whether or not they should be revisiting strategies, checking the collateral that was available? Because the pensions regulator did come out in May and say we're a bit worried about liquidity in pension schemes, we don't think they're sufficient. And interest rates had been going up and inflation had been going up. For a number of months before September, so there may be some questions asked as to as to whether or not the liquidity and the overall investment strategy was enough to balance out the LDI, and whose fault that exactly was.
0: So I guess that'll be interesting going forward. And I'm, I won't put you on the spot, but just for other investment opportunities, you know, whether that's going to take a bit of a hit now because people are thinking a bit more. Actually, we need to have a bit more liquid cash available. So whether those other investment opportunities that are often you know sort of alongside LDIs will be taking a bit of a hit I guess the next point is now that Liz Truss is God and then you know a lot of the, a lot of the, the things in the mini budget have been reversed or at least partially reversed is that making the situation any better now Rishi Sunak's in is is that making things better or is it made it worse you know sort of what's what's sort of the next steps I guess
1: Yeah, so I think for pension schemes, the end of last year was very, very busy for the trustees and the advisors involved with them in order to sort out the destruction and the wake of the LDI crisis in order to ensure that their investment strategies made sense. And for me, we're now in a period where the trustees of pension schemes, who are the ones primarily responsible for the investments made, they are having to revisit their investment strategies to check that they make sense going forward. Not only that, but given that there had to be sales of assets, et cetera, that they may remain invested in line with their statement of investment principles. Because if they are not, and the market turns again, they may well be blamed for not having sorted themselves out. So at the moment, we're in a period of everyone working out what happened and putting everything back in order Um, and that's really at the moment down to the trustees who are as i mentioned primarily responsible for the investment strategy but also the actuaries who assist the trustees both in their role as the appointed individual scheme actuary but also as the what's called a fiduciary manager who assist the trustees in relation to the investments made and the monitoring of the asset manager so they're busy at the moment to say the least in order to work out what to do going forward, make sure things are all sorted out, and to consider whether the LDI strategy is the right thing at the level they've got, having gone through what we did last year.
0: So that's the sort of the trustee side of things, and that's kind of day-to-day running. But what about insurers? I mean, are insurers sort of making changes? Are underwriters looking at policies and things to sort of look at LDI going forward? Because, you know, I imagine for most, it probably wasn't something, as we've mentioned, that was, was on the radar before this.
1: Yeah. So the, I guess the first thing about insurance, the LDI crisis, is that because of those who are potentially impacted, it is quite a broad classes of insurers that are impacted off the back of it. So um, trustees primarily responsible for the investments made by a pension scheme. To the extent there's an issue for them, they'll be looking to their pension trustee liability, whether that's a standalone policy or whether it's part of their management liability policies. So Underwriters are likely in that area to be asking around LDI strategies, how did the scheme respond? Have the governance structures been amended in light of LDI in order to ensure that the response is better next time around if it didn't work perfectly? In September and October of 2022. So, PTL insurers, pension trustee liability insurers are the first ones. We then got professional indemnity because they're the ones who cover the actuarial firms. And so, they'll be asking the actuaries, no doubt, around the LDA strategy operated by the schemes for which they are appointed and acting. And also, no doubt, asking questions around what I've referred to earlier as the fiduciary management services, these services that have really burgeoned in actuarial firms over the last five to 10 years, where they take on the responsibility from the trustees for the purposes of monitoring the investment strategy trying to corral that investment strategy to a certain extent so pi underwriters will be asking questions around ldi when it comes to the actuarial risk. And then we've got FI, so financial institutions, which tends to be where the investment managers sit. And those are the investment managers who made the investments um, under the mandate that they were given by the trustees and often the actuaries in support. They'll be considering whether or not LDI impacts them. It's probably fair to say that in my experience, it's more likely to be the larger asset managers that are impacted by LDI, but the more SME side of the business may well also be impacted. So under writers will be looking at from there so the interesting thing about ldi it does impact such a wide class of business that it's really important whether you're ptl pi or fi to make sure that you understand and ask the right questions when it comes to ldi
0: brilliant so i think just one final question for me really it seems sort of and it's probably because I was at home with a one-year-old watching lots of CBBs, but there wasn't an awful lot of commentary because I think, you know, and also the cabbage tended to take a lot of the spotlight of the news at the time. So, you know, what are, what are people saying about this? What the, sort of What is the industry saying? And sort of obviously there's, there's quite a lot of people who will be impacted, the pension regulator, Bank of England, individual firms, but sort of just, you know, a kind of a high-level overview of what you think sort of the, the market is responding to this.
1: So I think the immediate response was to come out, in defense of LDI. Uh, The pensions regulator came out with a statement in late September, October, defending LDI, and the FCA has done in similar terms. So no one's saying that LDI is fundamentally wrong, which is why I don't think claims about it being fundamentally wrong are going to have much prospect of success, but I wait to see what expert evidence is produced in that respect. In terms of the other immediate impacts, we saw that LDI managers increased the collateral that they required, and reduce the leverage. So there were some immediate responses to that. The pensions regulator also came out in a further statement towards the bank every last year, um, really in relation to governance from trustees. So one of the issues was the speed at which all of this was happening because guilt yields were increasing so quickly. There were, there were lots of collateral calls within small spaces of time and trustee boards weren't really geared to respond so quickly. And as a result of that, the regulators seen that and said, "Well, actually, you know, maybe you should have a waterfall of assets. You know, what you're going to sell quickly. Maybe you should have a smaller group of people who can make those decisions rather than you going to ten different trustees. And maybe also you should have a credit line from the employer. So all of these things that." Happened in the wake of the LDI crisis, and we saw certain schemes responding certain in different ways. The pension regulators obviously looked at that and said, "Well, okay, these are the things you might need to start thinking about." So we've seen an immediate response to it. In terms of where it might go going forward, I can't see LDI being removed as an investment strategy. I do think there will be some more care and concern around it. But for me, one of the most interesting things that was said in the wake of the LDI crisis was from the FCA. And the FCA came out and said that the circumstances leading to the LDI crisis were extreme but plausible. The FCA perhaps a slightly different view as to whether or not foreseeability and remoteness works in this area, having called it a plausible event, albeit extreme. So we'll have to wait and see. I think that the next year or so is going to be really interesting in terms of whether or not we see any claims. I think if if um, employers who are responsible for final salary schemes have a corporate event going on, for example, a sale um or the scheme is up for what's called tri- tri-annual valuation, where they get valued every three years, the assets and liabilities, then that's the sort of trigger where we're more likely to see potential claims. But no, let's wait and see.
0: Brilliant. Thanks very much, Rachel. That was really helpful. I think for me personally, sort of, it, it's a complete minefield. And if you try and do any reading into it, it's, it's <laughs> it takes you into a bit of a, bit of a maze. So um, that was very helpful for me and I'm sure for the listeners as well. So thanks very much for joining me. RPC Radio. Radio. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again next month when we'll be discussing the hot topics in the financial services sector. Please do click to subscribe and be sure to check out our other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Finally, many thanks to today's guests as well as everyone behind the scenes at RPC that make this podcast possible.